0: You can hold on to those uh, disposable cups and those things and throw them out on your way out. We're going to go ahead and jump into the Word this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to uh, open it to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 10 this morning. I don't know if you know what a Puritan is. Or if you've ever thought much about what a Puritan is, sometimes people get called Puritans, right? It's a really derogatory way. Don't be such a Puritan, right? If somebody's like being kind of uh, maybe you think they're being a prude about something, um, but uh, Puritans uh, were believers in the 16th and 17th centuries. They wanted to reform the Church of England and they wanted to purify it. That's why they're called Puritans. They wanted to purify it from the influence of Roman Catholicism. So that's why. Uh, they were called Puritans, and um, you may, when you think of a Puritan, you might think of like a pilgrim sitting at a table with like a cornucopia, right? And you think of like Thanksgiving or something, and that is because a lot of Puritans did come over here uh, seeking religious freedom. Uh, but one of my favorite things about the Puritans, if you ever read the writers, the, the, those who wrote, the Puritans who wrote, is that they had all these little helpful proverbs to remember theology by. Charles Spurgeon actually collected all of them up, and he made a a little book uh, with all of them in it. And I probably should, I I didn't have it in my notes to mention that, so I can't remember the title off the top of my head. But it is in my uh, office, and if you're interested in that, I will get that to you this week. But he collects all of them up, and and they have all these just pithy little sayings to remember hard theological things uh, that help you remember hard theological things. So Like, if they were asked to explain, why do you not just leave the Church of England? Why do you try to purify it? Why not just get out? They would answer this. They would say, if a man should fire a house to destroy the mice in it, we should think him to be fairly mad. All right, you don't burn the whole house down just because there's mice inside. When they talked about pride, they said, certainly a proud spirit is no great spirit, any more than a swollen arm can be accounted to be strong. It's a great little way just to remember that pridefulness is not helpful. So here is a proverb of theirs that's really helpful for us this morning. When talking about keeping the law of God, the Puritans said this, A man that keeps the law only outwardly can no more be said to keep the law than he that hath undertaken to carry a tree and only takes up a little piece of the bark. So if you say you keep the whole law of God, but your religion is purely external, then you're not carrying the whole tree. You're just carrying around a little piece of bark. And as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning, that is a helpful proverb that I want to refer, to back, uh, refer back to uh, a few times. Most of the time when people think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, they think about the word mercy. They think this is a parable about mercy. And, and it is that, but it's not just that. In fact, that, that's actually... Um, a message that you get from the parable incidentally. It's helpful, but it's incidental. It's not the main reason Jesus told the parable. This is a text that is actually much more about the law of God, and the purpose of the law of God, and what the law of God does to us when we come into contact with it. We're going to see Jesus on the road being challenged by an expert in the law, and His response will be this parable. He's going to give us a lesson about the things we can't do, the things we can't do and what we need because we can't do those things. It's a lesson about trying to carry a tree, but in reality, you can only carry little pieces of bark. So Luke 10, let me read for us starting in verse 25. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Father, help us in your word today. Help us to understand it. Help me to preach it. Help us to listen to it. And uh, Father, I think that if we're in church a while, sometimes we can just, sermons become a, almost a, a, a format of, um, of, of entertainment in some ways. We, we have sermons we like and we call them good sermons and other sermons maybe don't click with us. Uh, help us not to, to just listen to be entertained. Help us to listen to change, listen to be transformed, listen to uh, be made holy, uh, to be sanctified, to be purified, to be separated from sin, so that we can walk with you closer, uh, so we can be more effective evangelists, and so we can glorify you more in our lives. Um, so Father, open up our ears to what you would have to say right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When people talk about this parable, they want to jump straight to verse 30. They want to jump straight to, there was a man and that man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's why they tend to look at this passage and say, this is a passage all about the mercy of God. But in doing that, you're taking it out of its context. You disconnect the parable from the conversation that sparks the parable to come about in the first place. This context is so important, it takes us past simply be merciful, it gets to the real heart of Jesus' teaching here. So you have a lawyer who stands up, he asks Jesus a question in verse 25, and he does it with ill intent. He asks, how does somebody inherit eternal life? And you say, that's a great question. That is, in many ways, you could say the question for humanity. How can someone inherit eternal life? But he asks the question with the wrong motivations. He doesn't really want to know from Jesus how to inherit eternal life. He wants to see if he can catch Jesus in giving a wrong answer and then go, ha, you know, this guy that you all think is this great teacher is really not a great teacher, and he doesn't even have a basic understanding of religious things. Can't even tell me how to have eternal life. He wants to humiliate Jesus here in front of the crowd. He wants to invalidate Jesus. So Jesus responds by saying, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So now we have a debate, okay? That's what's going on here. He stood up to challenge Jesus. Jesus is challenging him right back. You have the teacher versus the lawyer. Jesus is called a teacher not because he has a degree hanging on his wall, not because he went to some certain rabbinical school. Jesus is called a teacher because he has proven himself to be a teacher. The people call Jesus a teacher because when Jesus teaches, he teaches with great authority. There's no question. When they hear Jesus teach, they don't go, well, we, we just need to see the resume before we can call you teacher. They hear him teach and they go, he's a teacher. He's never been a better teacher. He's a perfect teacher. The lawyer, he's credentialed. He's got the degrees on the wall. He's not the sort of lawyer you and I think of that you call up if you know you want to file a lawsuit against somebody or um, you think somebody has wronged you. Uh, he, he's not that sort of lawyer. To be a lawyer then meant that you were an expert of the law of Moses. That's what this means. He was an expert in the laws that governed the community of Israel. He was an expert in the laws that governed Israel as a society. He was an expert in the 613 laws of the Old Testament, and he was an expert in the man-made laws, because what the Pharisees would do, what synagogue religion would do, is if there was a law that said, don't touch this pulpit, they would say, well, let's build a fence around the pulpit. It's not enough just to have a rule that says, don't touch the pulpit. We've got to put a fence around the pulpit, and then put a fence around the fence, Then nobody will even touch the fence that's keeping people from touching the pulpit. So that's what the rabbis would do. That's what the Pharisees, um, that's the sort of religion they believed in. Let's put fences up around the law of God and then those things are laws. So the lawyer here is an expert not only in the actual laws of God, but the fences man had put up around the laws of God. He's a professional. So Jesus, the teacher whose authority is proven in his words and in his works, versus the lawyer who is called an expert because he's got the schooling. And Jesus does what he does so often, he answers a question with a question. And he does this because if this man's supposed to be an expert in the law, should he not know the answer? Teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? (laughs) You're the lawyer, man. Why don't you tell us all? how do you interpret it? So the man answers and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now that's the right answer. That's dead on. Like I said, he's schooled. He's not some some novice when it comes to reading the the words and, and understanding the laws. He gets it. In his head, he gets it. In fact, just to show you that he gets it, this is the same answer Jesus gives in Matthew 22. It's another instance where he's being tested by a lawyer. and says, One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. There are 613 Old Testament laws. Within those 613, there's the most famous 10, right? The ones that even children memorize in in Sunday school class and in preschools. The ten moral laws of God. In those ten moral laws, you get four of them regarding the Lord. Don't have other gods before the Lord. Don't make any idol or likeness for yourself and worship it. Um, Don't blaspheme the name of the Lord by taking it in vain. Uh, Remember and honor the Sabbath. Don't forsake it. Those all have to do with our relationship with God. Those are all vertical. And then there's these six that are horizontal, Honor your mother and your father, do not murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, don't covet. Those all have to do with your relationship with others. Of course they have to do with God as well, but they have to do with how we treat one another. In reality, the Ten Commandments are a snapshot of the entirety of the law, the entire law. And you can boil the Ten Commandments down to two laws. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew 22. Right? He takes those first four and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He takes the last six and he says, You shall love your neighbors yourself. So the Ten Commandments are a snapshot of the whole 613. You can boil the ten down to two. And that's why Jesus says the whole law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Jesus' answer, and that's the lawyer's answer in Luke 10. So the man is answered correctly. So Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. Those words are a reference to Leviticus 18, verse 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. You want to live? Keep my statutes. Keep my commandments. So Jesus says, you got the right answer, man, but do it. Now, that's the hard part. Because you can know it here, and certainly the lawyer does, but you try to bear the weight of it, that's a whole other thing. That's a burden you and I can't carry. That's, that's when you're trying to carry the whole tree. Going back to that uh, proverb from the Puritans. You know, on the outside, you might look like you keep the law. On the outside, you might look pretty good to the people around you. you say, oh yeah, man, that guy's a lawkeeper." I would bet this lawyer's life probably did look pretty good. But we know God looks much deeper than our public behavior. He, he looks much deeper than the exterior. He judges us by His law. And He judges our external life as well as our internal life, our thoughts and our attitudes. He judges our private behavior. And if we stand before God and He judges us by His law, here's what you're going to find. Though you may try your best, you cannot carry the tree. You have nothing in your hands but little pieces of bark. Because what the law does is it exposes our sin, and Jesus knows this. And that's why He places the law before the lawyer. Jesus knows that since Adam's fall, no one has fully and perfectly kept the law even for a minute until he showed up. But nobody born of two human parents since the fall of Adam have been able to attain eternal life by perfectly keeping the law of God. And so he places the law before the man to show him Just how feeble his efforts are at trying to keep the law because he knows when he says do this and you will live that the man has to know in his heart i can't i can't do it john calvin taught there are three basic purposes for the law i think this is some of calvin's best teaching and some of the most helpful teaching that he gave to the church so if you ever wonder why is why is the law there and what is my relationship to the old testament law as a christian Calvin taught this, that God gave us the law as a curb, as a guide, and as a mirror. And these are great word pictures. So it's a curb. When we say it's a curb, we're saying that it guides us. It keeps us from doing really stupid things. Really evil things. It keeps us on the road of morality. And it does that for Christians and non-Christians alike. A lot more people think about robbing banks than actually rob banks. Would you agree with that? There's a lot of people who fall in hard times and they think, what if I robbed a bank? And then they have this innate sense of morality in them, given to them by God in his common grace towards all of humanity, and they go, "Mm, that's wrong, I can't do that can't do that that's just too wrong man I can't go put a gun in somebody's face and say give me all your money I can't do it and so in that way for believers and unbelievers alike the law keeps us from doing really stupid things sometimes people are so evil they will do that thing anyways but for the majority of humanity the law and our innate sense of it keeps us out of big trouble for us as Christians it's a guide as well it helps us know how to live We cannot earn salvation by keeping the law, but it does help us know how to live. And so it is a guide to us. And then finally, it's a mirror. It's a mirror because when you stare into it, it exposes the deep need that you have for a Savior. When you look into the perfect moral law of God, what you see looking back at you is somebody who can't keep the perfect moral law of God. Somebody who's in big trouble with God on judgment day because God is going to judge us according to his law. And we know we will not pass the test. We know that while as a... As a as a person walking around here in the world, you might be a pretty good citizen. You pay your taxes. You don't hit your spouse. You raise your kids and make sure there's food on the table, right? You're a pretty good citizen. You're a pretty good parent. You're a pretty good spouse. But those are by worldly standards. If you get judged by the standards of God's law, again, you can't carry the tree. Because none of us can stand before God and say, Yeah, I've never lied. I've never loved something more than you and put it before you. I've never stolen anything. I've never coveted my neighbor's car. And so we will be found guilty before the law, and we will have an eternity of punishment for our sins staring us right in the face. What the law does is it stops our mouths. And all the attempts we may have to try to justify ourselves, the law comes and it goes, It shushes us. It it finds us out. It shows us that we are sinners. Paul says it this way in Romans 3. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So with that in mind, let me show you how Without any of us meeting this lawyer in this passage, we know beyond a shadow of doubt that he is a man eaten up with pride. You might think, how can you say that? You don't know him. You're not his judge. You just said God's the judge. How can you say that about him? Look at what he says in verse 29. Luke says, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? a prideful man the law doesn't stop his mouth why because he's refusing to be accountable to god jesus places the law in front of him to show him he can't carry the tree to show him he's a sinner to show him and his response is yeah but right yeah but it's like when you come in your kid you told him to clean their room and then you you come in and 10 minutes later they've done nothing It's worse. What's going going on in here? I told you to clean this. Yeah, but. Right? Because they want to justify themselves. So he puts this yeah, but there in front of Jesus, and it comes in the form of a question. And who is my neighbor? See, the law hangs on two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. He can't look at Jesus and say, but who is God? Because then he sounds like a fool. He's supposed to be an expert on that. So he can't say, well, who is God? Because then the whole crowd will go, what do you mean who is God? You're a lawyer, man. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? He's so eaten up with pride, he can't admit he can't carry the tree. He can't admit that he's failed God's law. He can't admit that he needs God's help. Instead, he wants to change the definitions. He wants to change the definitions of words so he can look good in front of the crowd, so he can look like he's carrying the tree. This was classic behavior from the Pharisees and those who ran with them, and the lawyers ran with them. Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers, they loved each other, man. They loved each other. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Heard it from where? The Bible didn't teach them that. Where'd they hear that from? They heard it from the synagogue." They heard it from the Pharisees, and they heard it from the scribes, and they heard it from the lawyers. Pharisees did not love their enemies. They didn't love strangers. They didn't even love other Jewish people sometimes. The only people they loved were people who fit into their small, narrow, elite, legalistic group. That's the only people they called their neighbors and loved. If you couldn't make the cut, if you couldn't play their game of morality, you were out and they hated you. You say, well, how can you be a a professional holy man and justify that sort of attitude? They would take a passage like Psalm 139, verse 21, which says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you and hate them with the utmost hatred? They have become my enemies. That's a passage where David is agreeing with God, and he is hating those who are actually warring with Israel. He does not want to be neutral toward those who have proclaimed themselves to be enemies of God and his purposes. But right after he says that, he asks God to search his heart to see if there is any wicked way in him. Because he doesn't want to end up having an ungodly attitude in his attempt to be on God's side. But that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They took these two verses out of context. Sucked them out with a vacuum, ignored all the rest of the Old Testament scriptures that demanded love for the foreigner, care for the poor, care for the widowed, care for the orphan, care and love for your neighbor. They did all sorts of interpretive gymnastics so they could declassify certain people and say, Those are not our neighbors. Matthew, the tax collector, he is not our neighbor. Prostitutes, they are not our neighbors. Jewish people who don't make it until the feast days, they are not our neighbors. Gentiles, they are not our neighbors. And if they're not your neighbor, well, hey, you don't have to love them. This is the attitude of the lawyer. This is his school of thought. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? Because if the only people I have to love are the people like me, well, then I keep the law. The law has exposed his sinfulness and he is clinging to it his prideful self-righteousness that's what's going on here Jesus could have said everybody's your neighbor you fool that's what I would have said that's what a lot of you would have said too let's be honest but he's Jesus and he's a lot better at debating than you and I are so he tells a story I love that this guy is being so ridiculous in front of this whole crowd well who's my neighbor Jesus doesn't go, gosh, you're such an idiot. He says, let me tell you a story. That's how you know somebody's wise. If you're ever talking to somebody and you're acting like a fool in front of their face and they say, let me tell you a story, you're about to get some wisdom, okay? So he tells a story to them. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now it says going down. Because Jerusalem, this is crazy. Jerusalem's 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho's 1,000 feet below sea level. That's a drop. That is a drop. They were only miles apart, 17 mile trip. that's, that's That's a big drop in 17 miles. You wanna talk about some ears popping? So it was truly when you went down to Jericho, you went down to Jericho. Literally went down. Jericho is actually the lowest permanently inhabited place on the earth. It was this windy road, all sorts of huge canyons on each side of it, lots of rocks and crevices. And to this day, if you go there and you want to take a bus tour, the buses don't drive this road at night to this day. It's still a dangerous place, still a dangerous road. Now in the first century, this was a superb place, top of the line, grade A place if you want to rob somebody. No better place than the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Because you could just hide in a crevice around the bend of the road and somebody comes around the bend and you jump out, you beat them up, you take their stuff and you leave. And that's what happens to the man in the story. He gets robbed and he gets beaten and he gets left for dead. So by happenstance, this priest comes along and sees the man and he passes by on the other side of the road. This is like if you pull up at a stoplight and there's a person standing there with a sign asking for money. You keep your windows up and you look straight ahead and you just wait for that light to turn green. And that's essentially what he does, right? This is the first century version of that. and He just goes to the other side of the road. Then a Levite comes through and does the same thing. Now the priests and the Levites, much like the lawyer, are professional holy men. All priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests. Okay, let me say that again. All priests were Levites, not all Levites are priests. Some Levites who weren't priests still had temple duties. They were in charge of like, picking out the liturgy for worship. They took care of the building. They did things like that. So they might not have risen to the level of priesthood, but they still had responsibilities. So both of these men, two professional holy men, Levite and a priest, leave the man to die on the road. Why? Well, maybe they thought he was already dead, and they were like, I can't become ceremonially unclean. Just going to go over to the other side. Or maybe they thought somebody got him, and they're not going to get me. If I go over there, they might get me. That could be somebody playing dead. This whole thing could be a trap. I'm not going over there. They don't want to be the next victim. Or maybe they're just busy. We don't know for sure. All we know is that they leave him to die. So then along comes this Samaritan. Now keep in mind what we learned two weeks ago. Samaritans and Jews did not like one another. When Jesus says here along comes a Samaritan, people probably would have thought, oh, they kicked him, didn't they? The priest and the Levite, they passed by. I bet they went and kicked him and spit on him. That's what they would have been thinking, like a Samaritan. They looked at the Samaritans like dogs, like half-breeds. Levites and priests were holy. They were set apart in their minds. Samaritans were good for nothing. But in Jesus' story, it's the Samaritan who understands neighborly love. He doesn't run the other way. He goes to the man. He feels compassion in verse 33. doesn't pass by on the other side of the road. In verse 34, he's bandaging his wounds. He puts oil and wine on them. He puts the man on his own beast of burden, his own travel animal. He takes him to the inn. He cares for him. In verse 35, it says, on the next day. That means is he stayed with the man all night. If it says on the next day, he was with him all night. Being a caretaker, binding his wounds. Then he gives two denarii to the innkeeper and says, Take care of him. If it costs more than I gave you, I'll come back and pay more. That was an extravagant level of love to show this man to show his neighbor two denarii is one day's wage extra biblical literature tells us and when i say extra biblical that means literature outside the bible tells us the nightly cost to stay in a roman inn was about one thirty second of a denarius didn't cost a whole lot to stay in an inn so do the math there the samaritan essentially pays for two months of lodging for this guy This is an extreme amount of love. He he goes to him, he examines him, he binds his wounds, he uses oil and wine probably as an antiseptic and and also probably to soothe him. He puts him on his animal, he takes him to an inn, he pays for a two-month stay, and if that's not enough, he says, if more is needed, let him stay longer, I'll come back and I'll pay you more. It's a blank check. And so Jesus ends the story and he looks at the lawyer and he says, so who's a neighbor to the dying man? Is it the priest, is it the Levite, or is it the Samaritan? And the man can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. See, this is a whole lot bigger than just showing mercy. It is that. It is that. But it's not just about seeing a person in dire need and giving them the things they need. It's not just about acts of kindness. This whole thing here is about salvation. Isn't that the original question? How do I inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? And Jesus is saying, you want to have eternal life? Then you do what God requires. Because what God requires is perfection. See, what you see in this passage is perfect mercy. It's perfect mercy, isn't it? Try to poke a hole in the Samaritan's mercy. You can't do it. He keeps the law perfectly as he cares for this man. And so if you want eternal life, you have to love the Lord perfectly and you have to care for your neighbor perfectly you got to carry the whole tree. But you can't. But this guy thinks he's doing it. He's walking around with a few pieces of bark. And he's going, I'm carrying the whole tree. And Jesus is showing him, no, you're not. Your religion is exterior. But when nobody's around, you'll cross that road and you'll leave that man to die. And you'll go to bed peacefully at night, justifying in your heart that he was not your neighbor, anyways. And God's law exposes that sort of religion. When Jesus says, go and do the same, he's taking his finger and he's putting it right on the man's insufficient righteousness, and he is unveiling it for what it is. Let me tell you something this morning. Next week, we're we're talking about Martha and Mary, and I'm going to tell you that I identify with Martha. All right? Like, I get her. I do not identify with the Samaritan in my flesh, if I'm being honest. I identify with the priest and the Levite. My flesh is selfish. I just want to cross the road and leave the problem for somebody else. I was born that way. But do you know who wasn't born that way? The Lord Jesus Christ. He was born without the sin that you and I were born with. Because he was Mary's son, he was conceived of the Spirit, and he is the true son of the Father, and he lived a perfect life, and he never once left his neighbors to die. He showed perfect mercy every time. He lived a perfect life. He was always compassionate. He always loved lavishly. And it culminated with Calvary where he suffered and died from my selfishness. The only one who ever perfectly kept the law and loved the Father and his neighbors without fail was Jesus. He's the only one who carried the tree and then he died on a tree for me and for you. He took the punishment that I deserve for my inability to keep the law. And so this lawyer is asking for eternal life and yet he's got the one person standing in front of him who could forgive him. He's right there, but he doesn't ask for forgiveness. He tries to justify himself. And the truth is that while the lawyer might have had the heart of the Levite or the priest in the story, in reality, he's the man dying on the side of the road. And the one who could rescue him and pour out lavish love on him is right there in front of him. But the guy just won't admit he's dying. He will not admit that he had failed to carry the tree. He will not admit his condition. So this isn't a story about feeling guilty over not loving the poor. It's a story about not loving God perfectly and not loving your neighbor perfectly and running to the only one who can forgive your sin and give you eternal life. The one who has kept the law for you and that is Jesus. And so I would urge you this morning as I wrap up don't be this lawyer. Don't have the one who can give you forgiveness standing right in front of you and you refuse to admit that you are dying. And let me give you a little bit of good news about mercy. If you do run to him if you do run to Jesus then he will transform you into the Samaritan. No, you might not be perfect in your mercy, but you will stop asking who is my neighbor and you will go and be a neighbor. That's what he does. He sheds his love all over your heart and all over your life and then the direction of your love changes. It's no longer just aimed at yourself. Your desires change and you begin to aim your love at God and then you take the love he's shown you and you aim it at your neighbor's. And He takes the wretched feet that used to walk to the other side of the road and He turns them into beautiful feet that run to others. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. He empowers you and frees you to carry the tree, not just a few pieces of bark. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, this morning that you would use us to be neighbors to the people that are around us. If we've been rescued from our sin and we've um, repented and put our trust in you. We've confessed our inability to keep the law. And we've trusted the one who kept it for us. I pray then you will use us to show the same extravagant love you've shown us to show to the people that are around us. pray that that would become our reputation, that we would be known for selflessness, that we would be known for extravagant love toward the people who are around us. And Lord, if we do not know you, I pray we would not try to play gymnastics in our interpretation of the law. I pray that we would not try to justify ourselves. I pray that we would not run our mouths before you, but that we would stop. We would stop in our, justifi- our self-justification, and that we would confess we can't carry the tree, and that we would receive your mercy. So, Lord, may your work, uh, or your word, I should say, do the work in the hearts of your people, Do work in hearts of people who are far from you this morning. Call people to yourself, the only one who can forgive. The only one who can rescue lawbreakers. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.